And go ahead and just take a minute and read that at your tables. If you'd like to read it out loud, uh, that's a great way to do it. Have one person just read that verse out loud to the rest of the table. The table can um, read along. If you have different versions, it's sort of a nice way to do it also. You can read it in one version and people can look on it in a different version. Let's just go ahead and read it. As you take a look at those verses, and you may still be reading them, is there one particular verse out of those 13 that you really like? You don't have to say what it is, but just sort of pick out that verse that just impacts you. As we have studied in Matthew 16, we have seen Peter's confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Lord, the Son of the living God. And immediately upon that confession, Jesus begins to teach his disciples the truth that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer under the Pharisees, scribes, and elders, and that he will be killed. And the disciples are, have a real hard time recognizing that and accepting that, because first of all, it's in Jerusalem where that's not supposed to happen. And second of all, it's by the religious leader that throughout the years they have been sitting under their teaching and they have revered them. They've respected them. They've trusted them to teach them truth. And now there's this challenge. And then towards the end of the chapter, Jesus begins to tell his disciples, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you want to lose your life, then try to save it. But if you want to save your life, then lose it. And then finally he asks, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So he confronts them and then he asks them some extremely pointed questions. And then after instructing them, the last verse of chapter 16, he says, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so he's left them with these different commands, these different statements, these questions, and then 
this point. And in John, in his gospel, says there were some who had gotten the false impression that Christ was going to return in their lifetime um, before they died. Um, but that was not what Jesus meant. In this passage, Jesus is not talking to his disciples about seeing his second coming. He's talking about them seeing the manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ, of his coming kingdom that will take place in various events in their lifetime. And so that's what we see in chapter 17, that first manifestation. And so in Luke, uh, so verse 1, it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them on a high mountain by themselves. When you go through these verses, there's a ton of questions that are never answered. Um, first of all, we don't know why Jesus picked Peter, James, and John. We don't know what mountain it is that they took these disciples to. Disciples to. We also have no clue how these three guys could recognize Elijah <laughs> and Moses. Because I don't think they had paintings of them yet. You know, and Charlton Heston hadn't gone up there. Um, and so we don't know, as we said, exactly why he chose Peter, James, and John. And you can make some guesses as to why. Um, but again, they would just be guesses. But Peter was always the spokesman for the disciples. Um, when the wa disciples wanted to say something, Peter, you, you talk to him. Peter was the one who was just out there. So it sort of makes some sense that Peter would be chosen. John was the beloved, you know, the special disciple in the heart of Jesus. So you can see why he would be asked. And then James, not too sure, except that we realize that in Acts, James is the first disciple that is martyred. Um, and so you have these three that go up. And it says that Luke tells us that Jesus goes off to pray. Okay? That he's gone off to pray, and that the disciples, and Luke, you see, that they have fallen asleep. So once again, Jesus has taken some disciples to go off to be with him, and he's going to go pray, and the disciples are that comfortable that they just go to sleep. And then in verse 2, um, it says that he was changed before them. He was transfigured. Um, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his, and his clothes became white as light. Uh, the word transfigured describes a complete change, a transformation. It'd be like, we've used the same word for when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's, it's a complete transformation. But it's also the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and when he instructs believers to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. That when a person comes to Christ, that there should be a transformation, or there can be a transformation that is so significant 
that people think different, they behave different, there is a change. It's not just like, oh, I think I'll just go to church and follow a guideline. There is an inward change that takes place. We are told here that when Christ was transfigured, his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. What is happening is that for this moment, this instant, these few minutes, the disciples are allowed to see Jesus Christ in the fullness of his glorious nature. Um, and he's just shown like that. Now, try to imagine you're sleeping. And first of all, you wake up to this light that is like nothing you've ever seen before. Um, I'm sort of guessing that's probably what woke the disciples, is this light. And then, you see, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared before them. So first of all, they have this light. They see the glory of Jesus. And then there's Moses and Elijah before them. Um, try to imagine how you would have responded. Um, you know, there would be, if we said these things happened to us, there'd be all kinds of studies done on us. All kinds of tests. Drug tests, psychological tests, any of those things. But imagine that they see the manifestation of Jesus at that point. Uh, James MacArthur describes it this way. And there he was, a lawgiver, Moses, and the greatest protector of the law, Elijah, and the fulfillment or the fulfillment of the law in Jesus standing before James, Peter, and John. And it says they are talking with Jesus. Now Luke tells us, once again, that they are talking about his death. They're just not talking, that they're talking about the fact that Jesus is going to have to die. And they're talking about that. And so it's no wonder that Peter would one day write, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So throughout Peter's life, regardless of what, why he was chosen, throughout his life, you see that this is a turning moment. This is a defining moment. This is a moment that says, I can look back on this and always remember that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he came in his glory to impact my life. And he says, we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. They would never forget it. It was this event that would have this lifelong and double, indelible impact on their hearts and on the minds of these three men. And throughout their ministry, throughout their life, they could hold on to the fact that yes, yes, I saw this, I witnessed it, it is true. Um, and they would need that, I'm assuming, later as they became church planters missionaries and preachers they would never forget this moment that's the moment that gave them strength that gave them resolve that gave them hope and it was an event that would provide them with 
perspective throughout their life, that no matter what else was going on, I could hold on to this. That transfiguration was sort of the light at the end of the tunnel. It was the hope. Um, it's an event in history that they could always look back to and say, I know that this is not all there is. And I think sometimes that's what we miss. We go through events and we see it for there and we don't have that vision of what these men were able to grab a hold of and onto so that when these things happened, they didn't see the event in and of itself, but they saw there was, there was more to the story. There's a glory that waits me as a follower of Christ. He's not going to let me down. He's not going to fail me. It made it all the difference in the world to these men who needed all the help they could get. Can you identify with that? Can you identify with the fact that when they experienced that, they needed that help? Um, do you recognize in the areas of your own life where you may that help? May I suggest that one of the reasons we come to church and worship together and spend time in this worship space is for that very purpose. To remind each other of the glory of God. That we can remind each other of the glory of Christ and his love for us and his power and that this isn't, wherever we are, that's the, not the final destination. That we've been reminded of his majesty. It reminds you that this is not all there is. Now, I think it's great that when we come in here, there's that sense of community, of fellowship, of talking, of sharing. But it wouldn't also be just as powerful that sometimes when we come in here, we just say, wow. I don't have to talk. I can just experience the glory and the majesty of Christ. That this isn't just a place I connect with other believers, but it's a place where I connect with God. And we need to be reminded of that. At least I need to be reminded of that. Because I can forget that when I'm out there spending hours in different situations, day after day, uh, week after week, and dealing with different situations, I sometimes forget that it's not about me. And it's not even about the events that are taking place. But it's about what Christ can do. And I need to be reminded. It's sad to me. I mean, it really is sad to me. And I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to respond to it. But years ago, not that many years ago, the average church attendance was 12 times a month. People go to church on, Saturday, on Sunday morning. They go to church on Sunday night, and they go to church on Wednesday. So they just go on a regular basis. Today, they say the average church attendance is twice a month. Went from 12 to twice a month. Now, it's sad for a lot of reasons. But one of the main reasons for me is that the church has lost the significance that out of everything else that takes place in my week, that I come to church to worship with the body of believers 
to help me experience the majesty of Christ, the glory of God. Um, and that's the sad part, that the church has lost that significance, I guess. And I'm not sure why, I'm not sure how, and I don't know what to do to change it. But the sense that when a person walks in, they should be able to say, wow, I needed this. And it wasn't that I just needed a message, a sermon. I needed to worship. I needed the body of believers. I needed somebody to pray for me. I needed that kind of resource and power so that church now has that significant place in my life. Um, it's too easy to forget. So that one day a week, one hour, we can come together to worship, to be reminded of his majesty and his friendship, to be reminded of his glory and his majesty, his holy otherness and his compassion and his love for us. Missed all the sin and the things that cause us to doubt and the things that make us question and the times when we wonder if we're alone and we have these crosses to bear and we have weaknesses and we have conflicts and we have struggles and we need a place. We need something. We need words. We need to be reminded of his glory and a sense of his awe and reverence of what God is doing in our world and doing in our lives. And we need to be in a place where we're reminded of that. Um, that this is not all there is and that we can also anticipate uh, that glory, the future day of glory with Jesus. There's also a promise here in these verses. Uh, there's a promise that there is life after death. We are reminded in these verses that Christ conquered death. Um, many have lost loved ones. People long to see them again. They want to hold them. They want to see them. They want to share with them. They want to talk with them. I can understand the desire to reconnect with a loved one. Um, for 10 years after my sister died, almost 12 years, I guess, I didn't actually believe that she was dead. I believed that she was in some institution up in northern Wisconsin, up in, outside of uh, Palmyra, Wisconsin, and that she was brain damaged and that my family was hiding her from me. I mean, I believed that in my head. Um, and... I can remember when I came to the reality that, no, she was dead, the desire, the longing to just see her again. I still have that longing. That was almost 60 years ago, and I still have the longing to see my sister. Um, will I ever get to do that? I believe so. Moses was married 1,500 years. Um, prior to this event, and Elijah had left like 900 years earlier than I say left because he left. Um, and even though Moses was buried, we really have no idea where he was buried. God buried him, so we don't know where that grave is. Um, so if you ever go to Israel and they say, this is where Moses is buried, wrong tour guide. Um, I believe that we're going to have, be able to see our loved ones. Because God is not a God of the dead. He is a God of the living. Um, and so you have the sacredness of this moment on the mountain. And it's interrupted 
you have this amazing moment. And Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. And in the midst of that, Peter talks. Impetuous Peter. Uh, he, in a clumsy attempt, he tries to memorialize the moment. He answered, said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? And he does ask a question. And he goes, shall we build three temples here? Or tabernacles? Or, you know, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Um, and it sounds good. It sounds pious. It sounds thoughtful. It sounds reverent. He calls him Lord. He defers if you wish. But it's all wrong. It's all wrong. And I find that's probably the hardest things that we do. There are times that we think that what we're doing or what we're saying really sounds good. And it can be all wrong. It can be all wrong. It's wrong at best. Peter wants to stay on the mountain, build a tabernacle, worship Jesus, and keep him from going to Jerusalem to die. The problem is if he doesn't go to Jerusalem to die, we're not here. And so Peter wants to keep him from doing what he's called to do. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, he once again just put Jesus on the same level as Elijah and Moses. He says, okay, that's great that the three of you are here. We're going to build a little tabernacle for each one of you. And then we can just all be up here on the mountain and have some good times. Again, it sounds good. And that's, you know, whatever the case, it's obvious that Peter did not grasp the significance of the glory of Jesus. Luke even tells us that Peter spoke not realizing what he was saying. Now, I read that and once again I'm thinking to myself, how many times have I spoken not realizing exactly what I was saying? Peter was at a loss for words, so what he, instead of just not saying anything, when he's at a loss for words, he just stumbles through words. Um, and he grasped them. And I realized there's so many times that I've done the same. Speaking before listening. Speaking before thinking. Speaking before observing. Speaking before praying. When I'm scared, worried, confused, have a question... Instead of just stopping, there's a tendency to speak. Um, and I guess I, I, I personally can't be too hard on Peter because I have no idea what I would have said if I had seen that. I don't know what I would have done. But it's interesting. In chapter 16, um, when Peter spoke out of turn, what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. So Jesus rebuked him. Jesus doesn't rebuke him this time. Take a look at verse 5. While he was still speaking, imagine, he's still speaking. He's going on and on about the tabernacles and the worship, and I want to do this for you, Jesus. And God interrupts him. Okay, enough, Peter. God comes down in his Shekinah glory and says, you know, a bright cloud shone above him and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son and who I am well pleased. And then what does he say? Listen to him. Listen, stop talking. 
Be quiet. Listen to him. Now, that's powerful in my mind. You know, how many times have I, as God just said, Andy, stop praying useless prayers. Stop saying useless statements. Stop just talking to hear yourself talk. Stop. Listen to Jesus. Stop trying to justify the things that you're doing. Stop. Listen to Jesus. Stop making excuses. Listen to Jesus. This is my son who I am well pleased. Um, I, I got to tell you, this was a hard <laughs> message for me to, to preach to myself. Um, but he, does, he publicly announces, this is my son. I love him. And the disciples, I think, needed to hear that. Again, it was a confirmation. It was a confirmation of the faith of Peter and James and John. In response to Jesus' confession, um, or Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus said, you're right, Peter. My father showed this to you. But now the father himself comes to Peter and says, yes, Peter, you're right. He's the Messiah. Uh, and this, not only is he the Messiah, this is what he actually looks like. This is what he really looks like. You've seen him in his glory. You've seen him in his majesty. And, Peter, you don't know the half of it. You know? <laughs> I've shown you this, but you still, you don't know the half of it. And so, yeah, it's hear him. Um, just listen to my son. If he say he's going to Jerusalem to suffer many things and be crucified and be buried, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. And he's going to be resurrected. If he says you take up your cross and follow him, then you better take up your cross and follow him. He is my son and who I am well pleased. If he says that you're going to lose your life if you try to hang on to it, then by all means, let go. Let go. He is my son in who I am well pleased. And if my son Jesus says to you, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You better have an answer for him. You better have an answer for him. Because he's my son. And with him I am well pleased. See, one of the reasons we worship together is because there are times when we need to hear. And maybe I should say every time we need to hear, you are my child and who I am well pleased. You are my child whom I love. And regardless of what you're going through, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, there's nothing that can take my love away from you and there's nothing that you can do to make me love you more. You are my child, who I am well pleased, and in whom I love. And so, and there are also those times when you will hear him say, Stop. Hear me. Listen. Quit talking. Let me speak into your life. Let me speak into your world. It says the disciples heard it, and what did they do? fell flat on their faces. You know, I know, I think if I was in the middle of a sermon, 
And in the middle of that sermon, there was a bright cloud. And it said, Andy, stop. <laughs> I'd be on my face too. Um, and I'd be full of fear to confront that. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't leave him there. He gently goes over and takes him. Touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Jesus never leaves us groveling in the dirt. This is my favorite verse. Um, Jesus touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. You know, in the midst of everything else that was going on, from a theological perspective, far more powerful verses. But just from that very practical verse, I don't know how to respond. I don't know what to do. I've blown it again. I'm laying on the ground. And instead of Jesus walking away, he comes over, picks me up and says, it's okay. It's okay. I understand. Um, get up. He says, there's nothing to be afraid of. Andy, get up. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. And they open their eyes and Moses is gone and Elijah is gone. The Shekinah glory is gone. The light is gone. It's just Jesus and his face and his eyes. And don't you know that his face and his eyes sustain them until their final hours. This memory, this relationship, this experience, this glory, this manifestation, this relationship with Jesus Christ is what sustained them. James would be the first to be martyred. Peter would be crucified and according to legend, upside down. And John, of course, is banished to an island. Um, and in the midst of all of that, it was Jesus that sustained them. The disciples were afraid and Jesus comforted them. And there are many things that can frighten us, including the things that we don't understand. Things that are more powerful, or at least in our minds, well, they are more powerful than us, but they're not more powerful than God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We do not have to understand everything. We just need to follow the directions. We just need to follow the relationship. We just need to have that relationship with Jesus Christ that picks us up and says, I've got you. I've got you. Jesus gives Peter, James, and John some direction in verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Jesus does not want the story to be told until the right time. And he doesn't want the story to be told that would take away from the real reason why he came. He didn't come to rule Jerusalem. He came to conquer sin and death. He came so that each one of us sitting in this room can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that frees us, that gives us that hope, that in the midst of whatever we're going through, we can be reminded that he loves us and that this isn't the final destination. The story would then clarify his purpose. As they continue down the mountain, the disciples are still perplexed. And again, it's hard to think with all the things that they've gone through, 
all the things they were raised with, and they see all these different things. They see these miracles. They see all of this. And they're still trying to figure it out in their head. And the confusion was made greater because they could not fit all the pieces together. And one of those pieces was the prophecy concerning the coming of Elijah in Malachi. And in verse 10, they asked Jesus about it. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? If that was true, how could Jesus be the Messiah if Elijah had not yet come and prepared the way? Now Jesus answers this verse in two parts. And he also answered it before when, with the birth of John the Baptist when he spoke to his father. And he also said some, talked about it in Matthew chapter 11. But now if you look at the first two words of verse 12, it says, But I say to you, and Jesus is using that same juxtaposition, juxtaposition here that he used in the Sermon on the Mount when he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he uses it here in verse 12. And he answered and said, Elijah's coming and all, and will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. The scribes are right to think that Malachi predicted that Elijah would come to prepare the way for the Lord. But they were wrong in not recognizing that John the Baptist was the Elijah predicted by Malachi. We can be right and at the same time be wrong. That's the scary part of faith for me. That's the scary part of preaching for me. That there's times that I can be right, but I can be wrong. You know? Because, I, well, these are the signs. These are, this, this all must be it. But I may misinterpret the signs. Which is why it is so vitally important that we as a people are transformed by the renewing of our minds by the Holy Spirit and His Word. Not just by His Word, but by the Holy Spirit bringing that Word to truth in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, and to let go of our agendas of how God is supposed to work and trust God's agenda and how he's supposed to work. Through Peter, James, and John, he gives the church a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. A glory that he shares with his church, a glory that he shares with people, a glory that he invites his people into. And the point of that is to sustain us also. Life in the world as we live today is not the whole story. There's a reality beyond what we see or recognize, and it is a glorious reality. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says Jesus' miracles were not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want, the world we were made for, a world of glory and perfection, a world not marred by sin, the world we all want is coming. 
Father, we do praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship you. And Lord, sometimes it's so easy to just take that for granted. And Lord, help us to have a deeper sense of what it means to worship you, to see you in all your glory, to sometimes just to be quiet and for you to speak to us, for us to listen to you. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask for your continued guidance and blessing upon each and every person here that we can go forth to be a blessing to others. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.